Today, it is my privilege and honor to introduce to you our special speaker this morning. His name is Dan Bushell. He is with the Missions Resource Network, or MRN for short, and he's out of Dallas, the network's home based in Dallas, and he, he works with the MedRim Initiative, what's called the MedRim Initiative, and he'll go into more detail about that, but he, he helped train the Espinosa family that we're uh, going to be partnering with um, coming up quickly here in North Africa. We're excited to hear how God is working, and we are able to partner, how that we're able to partner with these folks. Uh, Dan? Well, it's great to be back with you. It's been, uh, I think it's been five or six years since I was here the first time. And uh, I would not expect any of you to remember that, but I remember being with you. And so we are so grateful for the partnership you've had with us in the Med Rim. And I want to share with you a little bit about that. Before we do, I want to start asking you the question, how is your vision? How is your vision? How are your eyes working? How are your ears working? How are your senses of perception operating? And I got to tell you, at my age, where I'm closer to 60 than I am to 50, I don't have quite as sharp a senses as I used to. My ears are starting to go, and my wife and I will you know, uh, have a little bit harder time having conversations that we used to. We used to go to a restaurant and have a conversation. Now we can either go to a restaurant or have a conversation. It's just a little harder than it used to be. Uh, and my eyes are not what they used to be. Uh, presbyopia kicked in. I've got progressive lenses. And now if I go to the grocery store and I'm trying to read something in small print on a high shelf, my head almost falls off the back of my body trying to read it. It's, it's interesting the challenges you get into as you get a little older. So how is your vision. You know, even when our eyes are working well, vision is still really tricky. It's just not as reliable as we think it is. I want to show you a couple of optical illusions. Okay, how many of you, when you first saw that, saw a duck? Raise your hand. How many of you saw a rabbit? All right, this is more of a rabbit service. Last service is more of a duck service. We might want to think about that. Kind of create duck church and rabbit church and how does that happen? Why, why do some of our brains orient one direction and some of our brains orient another? I have no idea. Oh, let me show you this other picture. Which way is up? Kind of depends on what part of the picture you're focused on, right? Because you can focus on one aspect of the picture and it looks like up is to the right, and then another it looks to the left. It really matters how you look. My undergraduate degree was in psychology, and one of the things that they taught us many years ago was that we see what we are prepared to see. That's why men can't find anything in a, in a refrigerator, women. They don't know what it looks like, so they can't find it, even though it's right in front of us. It's right there. I don't know what that is. We see what we are prepared to see. My wife and I have been in ministry now for over 30 years, uh, 22 years uh, congregational ministry and 12 years at MRN, and we're in public settings together a lot, been in a lot of small groups and various things, and we will leave the exact same event where we were in the same room for the bulk of the evening, and I'll say something like, well, I thought that really went well, and my wife say, well, I don't know, did you see the look on so-and-so's face when you said such-and-such? Yeah, I think you may have a problem there. You better follow up with that. We saw the same thing, but we didn't see the same thing. 
because she has different eyes than I do. She attends to different aspects. She decodes information differently. And in the Gospels, Jesus does miracles, and some people are brought to faith, and some people are turned against him. They see the same thing, but they interpret it differently. Some see the hand of God. Some see the hand of the devil. Some just make up other stories. And we have always, as human beings, had a tendency to bend reality to fit our expectations. The people who work in this area call that confirmation bias. We have a tendency to bias information to confirm what we already believe. And if you've been paying any attention to politics the last few years, you know that happens all the time, right? That's why eyewitness testimony is not very reliable in court. Because multiple people at the same moment can see very different things depending on the angle they're looking at it, what they expect to see. Our politics is incredibly complicated because of confirmation bias. And we see that constantly. Something happens, it's in the news, and people react in completely opposite ways. We can look at the same events and see things very differently. And none of us sees things as they are. We see things as we are. What we see tells us about ourselves as much about what happened. Because we all live in these mental stories that we've accepted and helped create. And the stories that we live in, the way we explain ourselves and the story we're living in, determines what's called a range of plausibility. And only within this range of plausibility will we accept anything. And if it falls outside of that, then we find some way to move past it. And so we decide what we're going to focus on. We decide how we're going to interpret what we see about what we focused on. And then we construct stories that make sense of it, that fit within the range of our plausibility. Now, this happens in the spiritual realm all the time. Churches see what they expect to see for the most part. And it takes more than facts to change our vision. It really takes an act of God for churches to see what he's doing in the world. So let me ask you the question again. How is your vision as a church, Clear Creek? How is your vision? How well do you see what God is doing in the world? How well can you see what God is calling you to join him in doing? This is a faith question. It's about your expectations because you will not follow God if you don't expect him to be doing the things he's doing around you and you can't see it. If we can't see what God's doing today, we lose the plot. And if we've lost the plot, we don't understand our role. And if we don't understand our role, we don't know what to do. So Jesus has this statement that appears multiple times in the gospel. It's absolutely critical. He says in Luke eleven thirty four, for example, your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be filled with light. And he goes on to say, if your eye is dark, how deep is that darkness, right? How you see determines what you do. And there's a reason why vision is a major theme throughout the Bible from beginning to end. God appears in visions to people all the time. He's creating visions about what he wants to do. He's creating a vision of, here's what I want the world to be like, and I want you to step into and help me bring this into a reality. And he starts with Abraham when he appears to vision in, in Genesis chapter 12, and he calls him to be a blessing to the nations. He wants to unite and bless all the nations, and he's been working that vision out now for several millennia. And today, 
the record of all that vision work makes up our Bibles, but we still struggle to make sense of it at times because we get lost in other visions, we get lost in other stories. Sometimes we live an American vision instead of a kingdom vision, right? A lot of us are like that blind man in Mark chapter 8 that takes two touches to be able to see. Jesus touches him and he says, what do you see? Well, I can see, but it looks like trees walking around. Now, I don't know exactly what happened there. The story I make up in my mind about that is Jesus opened his eyes, but the optical part of his brain still wasn't healed, right? So his eyes could perceive what was going on, but his brain couldn't interpret it. And Jesus touches him again, and this time he can see clearly and make sense of it. A lot of us are like that. Our eyes are working, but we can't make sense of what we're seeing, and we need a second touch from Jesus. We've got a lot of churches that need a second touch to make sense of the world. That was certainly true on Acts, on the day of Pentecost, as recorded in Acts chapter 2. God was doing something. God poured out His Spirit that day. It was a fulfillment of stuff that had been prophesied for centuries. Confusion reigned. The Holy Spirit came down. Fire looked like on top of people's heads. People speaking all kinds of foreign languages they hadn't studied. Nobody knows what's going on much except for a few people who are Jesus followers. And and they seem to be saying that this recently executed religious extremist who claimed to be the king of Israel had come back from the dead. Now, how plausible is that narrative? That just sounds crazy. And and they're coming up with all kinds of stupid stories. Well, they're drunk. At 9 o'clock in the morning, 10 o'clock, they're drunk? That doesn't make sense. That doesn't explain languages. Since when does getting drunk ever help your linguistic ability? Now, come on now. But see, God hadn't spoken to his people like this in 400 years. And Israel had grown afraid to dream that God would work in their time like he had in previous times. And Peter got up and explained what's going on. And he talked about the story of Israel from the beginning all the way through and how God was now, the culmination of the ages was upon them. And this was the Spirit of God. This was all about Jesus and the crucifixion, the resurrection, and the Messiah had come. And 3,000 people who got that second touch were baptized that day. Acts 2 reveals that God's work can be hard for us to recognize until we get a vision correction. And we have churches all over this country who are badly in need of a second touch and some vision correction. Peter on that day said that this thing that you're witnessing was predicted by Joel, the prophet, eight centuries ago. He talked to Israel at that time about how the Assyrian army was going to be God's instrument to punish his nation. Israel had lost sight of what God had called them into. They had lost the plot. They they weren't living out the vision that God had for them. But Joel said the day is coming where God is going to do something amazing. And in Joel 2, verses 28 and 29, as Peter quotes him, Joel says, and afterward, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. And Peter said, that's what's happening right now. We're in that critical moment of history. Peter says that Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection is the hinge point of history and God was now moving in a new way that was going to transform our world. Well, I'm here to tell you some 2,000 years later, 
We are living in a moment like that in America, and most Americans can't see it. Even most American Christians can't see it because we're too busy obsessing all over the bad news that's happening in the news. And all the bad news that's coming at us, and we're obsessing, and we think everything is going to pieces. And I'm telling you, this is the greatest time in our lifetimes for the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're living in one of those rare moments when God has cracked open a major part of the world, and we're missing it because we're looking the wrong direction, or we're not seeing it correctly. At a missions conference just a few years ago, right before the pandemic, I heard a speaker who got up and said that if you count globally, on average, 3,000 people give their life to Jesus every hour of every day somewhere around the planet. Every hour of every day, 24 hours a day, 3,000 people give their life to Jesus, which means the day of Pentecost is happening every hour of every day, just not in one place. Christianity is the world's fastest growing religion. It's amazing what God is doing in the world. In 1900, just a little over 100 years ago, 80% of Christians around the world either lived in Europe or North America. By 2000, just 22 years ago, only 37% of Christians lived in North North America or in Europe. Some of that has to do with the decline of Christian faith, but the vast majority of that is explained by the rapid growth of belief in Jesus all around the world. In the United States, we are obsessed about the fact that our churches are plateaued or declining and the rise of the nuns and all of this kind of stuff. But what we don't realize is that's basically a white middle class phenomenon. Among people of color, among immigrants, the church is on the rise. And in the global south, below the equator and then in the far east, the church is expanding. The kingdom of God is expanding enormously like no other time in history. And I could go country by country and tell you about that. But why has this happened? What's going on? Well, two primary reasons that the kingdom of God is exploding all around the world. Number one, churches like Clare Creek have been sending missionaries and support for a long time to parts of the world where people don't know Jesus. Thank you. And number two, God's not dead. He's not even tired. He's not even old. He just is. And God is still calling us into his mission, both locally and globally. But even for this vast expanse of the Christian faith around the world, this day, as we speak, one-third of all the humans living on our planet have no access to the gospel. One-third of the people walking and breathing today are not going to encounter any Christian today. There are no churches. There are no Bibles. There is nothing around them. Unless they have like internet access and do a focused search, there is no way that they're going to encounter Jesus. One third of human beings. And the majority world church, meaning outside the West, the majority world church has 70% of the world's Christians, but they only have 17% of the church's annual income. So we have a pretty critical role to play to even support majority world Christians going to other countries because guess who has the money to support the global work of the kingdom of God? But the U.S. is far more than money to put into this partnership. We have leadership training, education, medicine, engineering. There are all kinds of ways we can come alongside kingdom workers around the world and add fuel to that fire. And then learn from what God is doing there because America is not the hometown of God's kingdom. The rest of the world is not sitting around waiting for a bunch of old white guys in Dallas, Texas to figure out what they need to be doing. 
because God is speaking to the people in those countries about what he needs to be doing. And we need to be partnering with them, and you need to be partnering with them so that we can learn because the research and development wing of the kingdom of God is outside the United States. We need to be learning from the parts of the world where the kingdom is dramatically on the advance and bring it back here so that we don't lose what God is pouring out generously everywhere else. And the stories that I hear are absolutely amazing. I wish you could travel with me. I wish you could meet the people and see the things. I know that's not feasible. And it's an incredible blessing that I get to see things that God is doing around the world. But I'm telling you, God is using all of the bad news to serve the good news. You know about Arab Spring. You know about the humanitarian crisis. You know about the revolutions that happened around the Mediterranean. You know about the millions of refugees who have flooded out of the Middle East and North Africa trying to get up Europe into the West. It's destabilizing the politics of all of the Western countries trying to figure out what do we do about this. We hear about terrorism and bombings and wars. We saw the fall of Afghanistan this last year as the Taliban took back over and we obsess about all this kind of stuff. But did you know that God is using the fracturing of all those countries and cultures to create openings that the gospel can get in? Do you know that more Muslims have come to Christ in the last 15 years than the 1,400 years preceding it combined you know the country that has the fastest growing Christian population is Iran, where it's illegal to convert, it's illegal to evangelize, and you could be sent to prison or even killed for converting or engaging in evangelism. And yet despite that, despite that, it's the, church, it's the country that has the fastest growing Christian population because they're desperate for hope. Among Muslim background believers around the Med Rim, we hear the most phenomenal stories of how they came to faith. Uh, for example, um, I want to. Well, I don't have a picture of this one, but I'll call this woman, or call this man, I should say, Ali. Uh, we met Ali in a North African city, and he told us as he came to faith, there were three three dreams he had on three successive nights that changed his life. In the first dream, Isa, which is Arabic for Jesus, Isa, who's a prophet in the Quran, appears to him and says to him, "I love you." Now, love is not really a feature of Islam. Islam is about submission to the almighty power of God. It's not a focus on love. Jesus appears to him and says, I love you. Like, what, what is he supposed to do with that? And then the next night, Jesus appears to him in a dream again. And this time he has bloody holes in his hands. And he tells Ali to drink my blood and eat my body. He doesn't know about the Lord's Supper. He doesn't even know the story of the crucifixion. He has no way to make sense of this. What does this mean? And then the third night he has a dream where there's an angelic host who are singing hallelujah, which is a Hebrew word he does not know. And Jesus says to him, or Isa says to him, you will be my preacher or my proclaimer. Well, what's he going to do with this? So he starts going online after everybody else has gone to bed looking for somebody who can tell him about Isa. He locates a disciple maker, a Christian in his country they set up a meeting, kind of a clandestine cloak and dragger kind of thing, and the missionary gives him a, a New Testament, says, read this first book, the Gospel of Matthew, and call me when you're done. The next morning, the missionary gets a call from Ali, and he says, I read book Matthew, and at the end it says I should be baptized. I want you to baptize me today. I want to follow Jesus. So he skips work. They go to the Mediterranean. He's baptized in the Mediterranean. He's so excited, he goes back to work the next day. His boss asks him, where were you? He said, oh, I became a Christian. I was baptized. He was immediately fired. He was kicked out of his family. 
He ended up getting beat up by the Muslim Brotherhood, and yet he is still a powerful advocate for Jesus in his country. There's a lot more, but let me tell you the story about, I'll call her Miriam, another woman in a North African country, grew up without a dad. Her father abandoned them. It was a deep source of shame in the family. Her mother supported them by baking bread for the family, and Miriam had this just giant hole in her heart, and she tried to fill it by being the very best Muslim she could as an older teenage girl, and so she said, I decided I was going to read the Quran, which isn't that necessarily all that common, So she said, I read the Quran, and after I read the Quran, she said, I could not be a Christian anymore. I mean, I could not be a Muslim anymore. We said, why? She said, well, it did not surprise me that Muhammad did evil things because he was a man and men always do evil things. But but Allah told him to do evil things, and this could not be true. So I could not be a Muslim, but I could not be an atheist, for that is stupid. So I began to look for the true God. And once again, late at night, 2 o'clock in the morning, everybody's asleep. She's online doing a hunt for the true God, and she finds a website generated by some workers in her country, and it has a page about how the, the God of Jesus, his Father, can be our Father. And the idea that God could be her Father grabbed her heart. It did something inside of her, and she prayed to this God of Jesus that he would come and be her Father, And she said, I had a peace come over me that I have never known in my life. And the next day, she set up a meeting with this disciple maker in her country and started on a journey. And then she became a very powerful evangelist working in her country. Now, she and her husband got deported, and they're now in Canada because they got in trouble with the government for what they were doing. Uh, But yet, it's amazing what God is doing. I want to show you a picture. Uh, This is a a ministry uh, called the Oasis in Athens. Uh, and uh, there's a door there. I don't know if you can see the door, the latch on the left side. You can kind of see the handle. Uh, There was a a woman who was from, I believe she was from Afghanistan, who was coming. She was devoutly Muslim. She wanted nothing to do with the ministry other than they gave much better food than what she could get in their refugee camps. So she would come and she'd get the food, but she didn't want to hear about Jesus. She didn't want to hear anything. Well, she got there early one day. The door was locked. So she sat down on this street. She leaned up against the wall And she said she fell asleep. And she had this vision of Isa, and he said, the door is open. And she said, no, I checked, the door is locked. He said, I am the door. The door is open. So she opens up her eyes, and she checks, and the door is open. And she goes in, and she talks to the local worker in there who leads the ministry. And she said, Isa appeared to me and said, I am the door. And he just showed her in the Gospel of John where Jesus said, I am the door. And she said, Isa has spoken to me. And she was baptized and became not only a Christian, but another disciple maker. I forgot to tell you about Miriam's mother, the bread maker. She rejected Miriam when she became a Christian poured a bucket of water over her head and said, no daughter of mine is going to be a Christian. And then her mother had a dream where Jesus appeared in the dream and said, I am the bread of life. And she went to her daughter and said, Isa appeared to me and said, I am the bread of life. And so Miriam showed her where Jesus said that in the Gospel of John, and she was baptized too and became a follower of Jesus. 
one or two of those stories are easy to discount, I guess. I was skeptical when I started hearing these things. This is not what I was raised to believe about how God worked in the world. And yet over and over and over, as we have done work around the Mediterranean, we keep hearing these stories. People who are paying a price, who are sacrificing so much to follow Jesus, and yet have this new purpose and joy about them. And what workers on the ground tell us is that four out of every seven Muslims who come to Jesus or come to Europe and that they have conversations with report having had visions and dreams of Jesus along the way. And I'm not sharing the more outlandish ones with you because I'm not sure you would believe them. This, this has led us into partnering with you and other churches. We've got 16 partner churches and others that are providing financial support to workers who have now helped us put five teams in three countries. We've got six more families in the pipeline looking at three additional locations. And the most recent to arrive have a family that you're helping support, and they're from Cuba, and they're North African country. Now, all that happened during the pandemic, and it was incredibly complicated, and we learned a lot about how hard it is to get Cubans into other parts of the world. But by the grace of God, and in answer to prayer, they arrived August 1st, all three families. i just show you a couple of pictures here. Uh, I'm sorry we have to pixelate the faces, but we don't want them to become targets of violence. And more importantly, we don't want the people that they lead to Jesus becoming targets of violence. So this is, this is them. Uh, they're in, the, in the, uh, North Africa. You'll see another picture from the airport when they first arrived. Uh, we had to block out the name of uh, the restaurant there above them because, you know, they didn't give us any money to sponsor that picture. But anyway... Um, <laughs> They're already having an impact. I got an email uh, uh, Friday afternoon before I left uh, about how the person that managed the paperwork when they signed up for their apartment for one of the couples told them that he was secretly a believer in Jesus and he sensed the presence of God around them. But he said, I haven't been pursuing God in a long time. And now he has begun to connect them to other people he thinks need to know about Jesus. They haven't even been there a month yet. It's just amazing how God is already opening things up. Let me just show you a picture of another guy. This guy is, uh, we'll call him Mansour. Uh, He's from Iran. He was actually in prison because he was working in the mafia as an enforcer. Uh, And he was in prison and he met some people in prison who were there because they were following Jesus and they made him want to learn about Jesus. Anyway, he eventually got out of prison, ended up in Athens And he, in the fall of 2019, had already baptized 500 refugees into Christ. And he himself is a new believer who's being formed and working in partnership with some of the missionaries that we put there. He he knows the love of Jesus, but he's still learning so much. And people who have come to know Jesus in Greece, who've been refugees, have moved to nine other countries where they've settled permanently and are starting Bible studies, discovery groups, and churches in those nine other countries just since... Uh, workers arrived in 2017. It's just amazing what God is doing. And, and I know these stories really stretch us. I know this is not what we expect God to be doing. And I'm not saying that Jesus is going to show up in your dreams tonight, although he might because he can do whatever he wants. But you know, God doesn't work exactly the same way every place and every time throughout history. And in places where there are no churches and there no, or are no Bibles, God still finds ways to get people's attention. But in every story I've heard, God leads those people to actual flesh and blood Christians who can give them Bibles and guide them and form them. And if you're not reading your Bible, don't expect God to show up in your dreams. But maybe he will. I don't know. But here's the point. Here's what I want us to get from this. 
If God can give dreams and visions to Muslims who've never known Christ while they're asleep, can't he give those of us who know him big dreams and visions while we're awake? I'm not asking you to dream at night. I'm asking you to do some daydreaming. I'm asking you to open your minds and open your eyes to dream bigger and to see more. To go out into your day every day expecting to have a divine appointment that God set up for you there because you don't know how God has already been preparing somebody for you to talk to that very day. And you will have no idea the impact of the conversation you have with that person in most cases. But we need to have an expectation of a God who works. Don't limit God to what you can imagine Him doing through you. Because God is bigger than we imagine and He is not waiting on us to make plans for Him. In Ephesians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21, Paul writes this, Now to him who's able to do immeasurably more than all we can ask or imagine, according to his power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Now, do we still serve that same God? I heard a missions leader say at a conference a while back that if your agency can handle your mission alone, then your vision is too small and your strategy is too cowardly. And I would say the same thing to every single church. If you can can fulfill your mission all by yourself, then your God is too small and your strategy is too cowardly. The biggest challenge we have in the U.S. is our low expectations of God. Our God is too small, our vision is too nearsighted, and we're working in isolation instead of collaboration. We're operating out of fear instead of faith. We tend to operate from a scarcity mentality. We do a lot of zero-sum math. Well, if we do this, we can't do this. If we do this, we can't do this. And we forget we serve the creator God of all abundance who still knows how to multiply loaves and fishes. And where the vision arises, the resources follow. We need to be asking, what is our role in the movement of God? Now, you've had a vision here for a long time for Asia and for unreached people groups around the world. And you've pursued that. Thank you. God bless you. Thank you. You were one of the first churches to say, the Muslim world's opening up. Well, that's not exactly China, but that's unreached people groups. We want to be involved in that. Thank you for jumping on that when it was just a vision and there was no fruit yet. Thank you. You are part of something so much bigger than yourself, so much bigger than Chattanooga, but you play a critical role. This is God's story, and he is still the Lord of the harvest, and he's just asking us to follow him. He's calling us to join what he's already doing. He wants us to come and show up with our little lunch pail and just contribute it to the banquet that he's spreading out. We need to catch God's vision. Don't fear daydreaming. Don't fear doing something big. Because the story of the Clear Creek Church of Christ is not about Chattanooga. It just comes from Chattanooga. And the glory of what God is doing in the world is global, and you will never see it all this side of eternity. But did you know there are thousands upon thousands of people who've met Jesus because you sent workers and you sent support to do things in countries you will never visit, to bless people you will never meet? In 2005, I was preaching in Brazil, in Sao Paulo, in a congregation where our church had been providing support for a long time. And after the first night that I spoke, this younger couple came up, Fabio and Simone, beautiful. They look, they, they look like what you would expect somebody named Fabio and Simone to look like, right? Like had been on the front of a romance novel. And they just grabbed me 
And they hugged me, and they kissed me, and they spit in my face as they talked six inches from my face. And they said, thank you, thank you, thank you for sending us Jesus. And it changed my life. It changed my life. One day in heaven, there's going to be a long line of people who know Jesus because of you. And they're going to come up to you, and they're going to hug you, and they're going to kiss you, and they're going to hold you, and they're going to say, thank you, thank you, thank you for sending us Jesus. Now, the Clear Creek story is a small chapter in this massive epic tale that started in Genesis, and it's still going on. But God is intent on bringing all the people groups of the world into the new Jerusalem, bringing the treasures of their country and culture with them, to be put on display of all the creative diversity of God's work throughout all the world, all redeemed and purified in Jesus. I can just see it now. Can't you? So let me ask you again. How's your vision?